2023 going through the book of Exodus except for a break in the summer in the early fall. And, um, and we only have three more weeks left. And so you would think that if there's 40 chapters that we're going to make it a little bit further today, but we're only going to do really two verses. Um, but then next week we're going to finish 34 and then 35 to 40 we're going to do all in one go. And I know that sounds impossible, but you'll understand next week when you get there why. Um, but if you are visiting or if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, let me just give you a little bit of context, a real quick uh, recap and a reminder of where we've been so we can see the importance of these two verses. Because what, what I'm going to argue and show is that these two verses in one way or another are quoted pretty much more than any other verses in Scripture. And so there's not only a direct importance in the book of Exodus in the exact moment that it's here, but all the way through God's, God's plan of salvation into the New Testament. And really it's going to help define for us the characteristics of God, who he is, and how we ought to know him. So last week we looked at chapter 33. God calls Moses to get ready to move on from Mount Sinai. He's to lead the people to the promised land. However, one of the consequences of their idol worship in, in the previous chapters is that God's presence is no longer right there with them. And it's a devastating consequence. And Moses goes up to the mountain and intercedes for the people and, and pleads with God and says, says I don't even want to go if your presence isn't with us. It says, if, if your presence isn't with me and with the people, then how will we stand out and be distinct and how will we bring the blessing that you promised Abraham for us to bring to all nations? And Moses pleads to God in God's character for who God is. And as we've talked about, Moses has been tested as a leader several times to see, Moses, are you in it for your glory and your honor or are you in it for God's glory and God's honor? And Moses continually um, is passing the test, at least in these moments. And then we ended with a text where he says, he's, God says, I'm, I'm going to go with you. There are going to be some consequences, but my presence will go with you. And, and then Moses says, God, show me your glory. And God says to Moses, I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to show you all of my goodness. Not, not literally all of every aspect of God we as as." created beings under God could never understand the creator completely. But he says to Moses, I'm going to bless you with this moment, with this, with this experience where you will see and understand more of who I am. And if you want to look back last week, if you weren't here to, to see, I, I dealt with that at length. But this, these verses, these first nine verses in 34 are the, are the kind of fulfillment of that. So let's read this together. Exodus 34, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first one. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the mountain to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a, 
a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. It is a stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Now, predominantly verses 6 and 7 are what we're going to focus on. But just before we get to those verses, there's an implication in verse 1 that can be easily overlooked if we don't remember the context of 32 and 33. When Moses came down the mountain with the original Ten Commandments, what were all the people doing? Worshiping a golden calf. What were the first two commandments given to the people? Don't worship other gods. Don't make an idol. And so they broke the covenant that God had said. And if you remember, in chapters 19 and 24, when God gave the covenant to the people, they responded the same way. Both times it says, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. At least until we get a chance, and then we're going to mess it up. And so Moses comes down and he throws the commandments and breaks them, signifying the broken covenant between God and his people. And so the consequences that we've looked at in the last number of chapters lead to this moment, but what we see here is God is a God of grace and mercy because he says, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first one. In other words, what's he doing? He's re-entering the covenant with his people, even though they broke it. Even though they didn't just make an oops, they broke it badly there are consequences for that but god says i'm going to i'm going to do this again and so the ten commandments are given to moses and as moses is up uh, on that mountain we have this this moment in verses uh, six and seven that are the fulfillment of this promise of god saying i'm going to show you my glory. And if you remember last week, and I just want to touch on this real briefly, there's more details in, in last week's sermon if you want to go online. Um, but it's not as though God is a human. But he talks in this anthropomorphism language or this kind of way of saying, I'm going to cover my hand over you so that you can't see me in all my glory because if you do, you, you would die. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't deal with that holiness. So he uses that language to help us to see it. But here we kind of see what happens. But notice this. Verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And what did he do? He proclaimed the name of the Lord. He proclaimed the name of the Lord. In other words, he fulfilled exactly what he said. Moses, you're going to see my goodness. You're going to see my glory. And we're going to look at this next week at the end of chapter 34 is because of this encounter, when Moses comes down, his face is literally glowing because he had a moment with God, a unique moment that we're going to to talk about this next week, but that the people have to put a veil over Moses' face because they're too afraid to look at the brilliance. And that's not even God's brilliance. That's almost like thinking of it as residual 
brilliance coming off of Moses. So this is a big moment, but he says, I'm going to proclaim the name of the Lord. And so the Lord passed before him, and this is the proclamation. The Lord, the Lord. Real simple. Why does he say it twice? Why do we say anything twice in a row? Emphasis. The Lord, the Lord. A God of mercy, grace, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So God's mercy and God's grace, kind of two sides of the same coin, I guess, is, is you could think of it as that God's mercy is not giving us what we do deserve, and God's grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. And those are maybe a little bit more easy to kind of understand. God's slow to anger. Well, we can understand what that's like, usually because we're not very slow to anger. But what does it mean that he's abounding in steadfast love? Or some translations of yours might say loyal love. Well, here I want to quote Douglas Stewart because he says this really well. He says, careful studies of this Hebrew word has said, uh, translated as love, here demonstrates that it connotes long-term, reliable loyalty of one member of a covenant relationship to another. In other words, it's saying that God's steadfastness, his loyal love towards us is not dependent on our response to him. It's dependent on who he is in his character. We might say it this way as unconditional love. And maybe we see that sometimes with maybe a spouse or with our children or whatever where, where you know, from an outside looking in, you're like, man, you should really give up and move on. And we're going, no, I've covenanted with this, my spouse. I've made promises to my family that no matter what happens, I will be there. That's what God's loyal love or his steadfast love is here. And again, his steadfast faithfulness, well, the same thing is he's faithful when we are not. And we've seen this all through the book of Exodus. Is God shows up and does something amazing to bring the people out of slavery. And all through that journey, there's, this, there's moments where they grumble and they complain. And if you remember back a number of months, they grumble and complain and, and they seem to think of Exodus. Uh, they seemed to think of Egypt in a way that was not reality, right? Is they would go, man, if only we were back in Egypt, then we could have our fill of food all the time. We just sat by the meat pots, and we ate all the vegetables, and we had everything we wanted, except that they were crying out in slavery, being persecuted and oppressed. But they only remember what they want, and so they cry out against God, and God continues to be faithful to them even though when he's faithless. But then we have this section, and this is where I want to spend a few moments now. It says, he keeps his steadfast love for thousands. Don't answer this question yet, because some of you will have a clue that others don't yet. But it's rhetorical. I just want you to think of this. Keep his steadfast love for thousands. Thousands of what? This is where reading text and reading it in context becomes really important. And we're going to talk about translation and all of those things in a moment. But the text gives us the clues that we need to interpret this. So it says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but, and we're going to deal with this conjunction and, and what we perceive as the good things about God and maybe some of the harsh things about God, is he says, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father 
on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now again, we're going to talk about that verse too because so much bad and incorrect teaching has come out of that that's really confused people. But if we look at this, if what are the thousands if we see the third and fourth in the very next verse? What does it say? Third and fourth what? Generation. Now how many of you have the ESV translation? You see a little footnote? See, this is why I said not to say anything yet because some of you had, you know, a little hint for you. Down at the bottom where it says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, footnote, or to the thousandth generation. So what happens here, and this is the unique thing about what Scripture does in the various translations, is sometimes translations will give you the hints so that you can learn to interpret things in their proper context, but sometimes they just make you do the hard work for yourself. And both of those have value. Both of those are important. We don't want to be spoon-fed everything, but we do need sometimes some clues. And the ESV here goes, man, this is a central verse that is important to understand who God is, his character, moving all through Scripture. So we're going to give you that little bit of help. We're going to show you what that is. But not all translations do that. If you have the NIV, if you have the CSB, if you have the uh, King James Version, it doesn't do that. But then the NLT comes along. Now, those of you who know me well know my love for the NLT. Just kidding. It's fine. It's fine. But they actually outright say to the thousands generation, then they have a footnote, and then at the bottom it says, or thousands. Now, the reason I don't love that is because they're not helping you with interpretation. They're taking a translation and putting it somewhere. And so then when we start to look at original language, if you get nerdy like that, and you start to kind of think, where do these other things pop up? It's harder to see that pattern. So I'm not saying it's wrong or bad, but I'm saying the ESV here is really, really helpful for us in that. So God's loyal love is for thousands of generations, but he will visit the iniquity of the father and the son and the next son and the third and the fourth generation. So what what does this mean? Well, well, let's deal with this really, really quickly. Well, I'm going to try doing it really quickly. (laughs) Let's see if that works. Often people will buy into poor theology because they take something out of the context in which it's meant to be. And so this third and fourth generation often has been taught that God will divinely punish generations in the future for someone's sin. Now here's the thing. The Bible doesn't actually teach that. In fact, Deuteronomy 24, 16 says this, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their father. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Now, I know that sounds really aggressive, but if you read it in Deuteronomy 24 in the context, you kind of see why it's so aggressively stated. But the point of that text is this, is you are responsible for your sin, and you will be held accountable for your sin, not the generations that come before. That's good news and not the ones that come after. Parents, maybe you've been in that moment before. That's good news, too, for you. Now, yes, you have a responsibility, but ultimately, you can't make your children choose anything. We all are accountable for our own choices. So what does it mean to the third and the fourth? Well, let me give you an example. Let's say, uh, and this is just an example. I'm not saying this is true, just to be clear, because I don't want to smear my grandfather because this is not true i'm just using it as an example let's say my great-grandfather had a wicked temper 
right? And he was just an angry, vindictive person. Well, some people will say that because of his anger, that God will divinely punish him, but that divine punishment will continue to come down to those next generations because of what he has done. Let me just say real clearly, that's not biblical, that's not correct, that's not a doctrine you should hold to. Now, there are some interesting implications to that. Is if I grow up in a home of volatile anger, it may be passed on to me not necessarily in a genetic sense as much as in a practice sense. That's how I see my father relate to me, and so I'm going to relate to my children that way. And so there is implication that this could happen, but what it's saying is that God's not going to divinely punish you for something that was done or said or happened in the previous generation. And that's very, very important for us to grasp. Now, sometimes we'll say it this way, and I'm, I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to pick a, a, a part of the world because I don't want to unnecessarily pick on a part of the world. But sometimes in conversation, we'll say things like, oh, that's just my blank heritage, right? Whether we have an anger problem or whether we have a stubbornness problem or whatever it is, we'll blame it on previous generations. That's the same thing that's buying into this. But here's the thing is you and me are responsible to break those cycles, If my father, and again, I'm not saying he was, he was not, but if he was, you know, flew off the handle and was so angry and and violent towards me, then it is my responsibility to go, I will never respond with this kind of anger to my children. I will break this cycle now. That is our responsibility to do. But God is not going to hold me responsible for what my father did. What he is going to hold me responsible for is if I perpetuate and keep doing that same sin. So Douglas Stewart again says it this way. This doesn't mean that God would punish children and grandchildren for something their ancestors did, but that they themselves did not do. Rather, it describes God's punishment of a given type of sin each generation as that sin continues to be repeated down through the generations. I hope that is clear and that makes sense. I want you to hold that. I want you to go home with that, realizing that what's happened previously does not have to mean it will happen for you too. You can break that cycle. Now, I don't mean that by you can do that just in your own power. You have to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish that. So, when we think of this, here's the, we could say, this is the good characteristics of the God. God is merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, on the fa- forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. All those are good and wonderful things that we read and we go, thank the Lord that he is willing to do those things. But if there wasn't a but, that's a funny sentence, if there wasn't a but here, a conjunction, to talk about God's justice in the midst of that, then I'll say it this way, is we would never worship that God. By that I mean this, when wrong things happen, rather let's say it this way, when we do wrong things, we want mercy, but when wrong things happen to us, we want justice. But when it's separate from us and we can be a little bit more objective, sometimes we can go, okay, maybe we can apply mercy in that situation, it wasn't that big a deal, but what about child trafficking? Would God be a God of love if he wasn't a God of justice? and rescued people, and held people accountable for their awful treatment of the the children in our world right now? 
is we would never worship a God who's just always gracious, who always forgives, who's always loved, but is not justice. The very thing that we need is love and justice. And sometimes people will make this verse say, okay, to the thousands, so God is more loving than he is justice because the justice only happens to the third and fourth. But that's not what the text is saying at all. The text is saying that God is love and he is just. The Bible says it this way in 1 John 4, God is love. But God also says, I am holy. He doesn't say, here's who I am and here's some other characteristics that I have. All of these are true at the same time. And this is where it becomes difficult for us because I don't ever know when to be just and mercy. Should I, should I be merciful here in this moment? Should I be... Or should I have justice in this moment? I don't know that. I have my own opinions, and again, when it impacts me, I usually pick selfishly. But the point is this, is that God doesn't look at situations and go, in this sense, I'm going to show mercy, but in this sense, I'm going to show justice. He says, I'm going to do both at the same time. So let's give an example. Back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are walking in fellowship with God, and God says, don't eat of this tree in the day you eat of this, you will die. There's consequences for if they make that bad choice. Well, they make that bad choice, and so we read that they're taken out of the Garden of Eden, that presence with God is, is ruined, and that they're now outside. So that's God's justice. But also in the text, and we might forget to read this sometimes, God says, and it's kind of the way it's worded, he's talking amongst the Trinity and himself, right? And he's saying, we need to cast them out of the garden. Why? Anybody remember? So they don't eat the tree of life. Because if they eat the tree of life and live forever, they now live in forever in their sinful state. So it's actually God's mercy that he takes them out of the garden. And that he goes, we're going we're gonna to deal with your sin. Their death is going to happen. There's consequences that I've said. But I'm also going to show you incredible mercy to restore you back to myself but the mercy right now is in taking you out of the garden because if you eat of the tree of life and live forever in your sinful state, you can never find redemption. So in that one moment, God does both of those things at the same time. And that's hard for us to kind of grasp and see, especially when it applies to us, especially when someone we love gets hurt or a disease happens or, or an accident and someone is killed and, and we cry out, we got, how is this fair? Why didn't you show mercy in this? Why was there only a sense of your justice? Why couldn't there be both? But the truth is, there's always both. We just don't have the eyes to see it just yet. And I don't say that to try and like, make it some, oh, this is not a big deal, we're not going to talk about this, we'll just move on. I think we've got to wrestle with it. God, why did you allow these things to happen? And I'm not looking for the answer, because I'm probably not going to get that answer. What I'm looking for is God's presence. What I'm looking for is him to reveal his glory to me. Often what you see, and you see this in the book of Job, is Job demands answers from God, and finally God shows up. God doesn't give him any answers, but he basically says, right, where were you? Who are you that you should tell me what to do? And what is Job's response? I repent in dust and ashes. I spoke of things too wonderful for me, things I did not understand. 
the people here are being shown incredible grace and incredible mercy. And it continues on because they continue to make awful mistakes. But there are consequences. God will not overlook sin. He won't just go, oh, it doesn't need to be dealt with. And if you remember a couple weeks back ago, we talked about Moses' intercession between God and how he offers his life in place of the people. And I talked about how that is foreshadowing. That's for us to see that Jesus is going to one day actually accomplish that. Well, here in the same way, we should see the foreshadowing of Christ here, is that God's mercy and his justice are probably most evident in one moment in history. And what is that moment? The cross. Sin had to be paid for. Justice had to happen. And I talk about it in in this theological term all the time, but I try to explain it as substitutionary atonement, is that our sins had to be paid for, and somebody became our substitute, and that somebody was Jesus. He stepped in, and he took the punishment for what we deserve so that we could find that mercy. Is when we see God's mercy and we see his justice, we should look to see the cross. Because in the cross, we see everything that we need, everything that we don't deserve, everything we do deserve happening to someone who stepped in our place. Now again, when it comes to me, when it comes to my response, do I show mercy or do I show justice? The answer should be yes. Now how do we do that? That's a very complicated question. I don't have easy answers for every situation. But here God reminds us that I am merciful. I am gracious. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and I'm keeping steadfast love for thousands. I'm going to forgive iniquity. I'm going to forgive transgression. I'm going to forgive sin. And we say praise the Lord for that. But I will not clear the guilty. And we say praise the Lord for that too. Because if God wasn't a God of justice, then there would be no justice on this earth and there would be no justice for eternity. So sometimes we want to look at just the aspects of God's character that we like and that's today's Christian world big time. Is let's only focus on God's love. If, if we only focus on God's love, then we don't have to focus on the things that God says that we shouldn't do. But the problem is this, is when, when Jesus goes up to be with the Father after the death and the resurrection, he gives the Great Commission, and the Great Commission tells us to do what? Obey everything that I have commanded. Jesus doesn't say, there, I've, I've accomplished it, go and live how you want. He says, I've accomplished forgiveness on the cross. Now go and share this news with other people. Teach them to obey because when they obey, they were going to become more like Christ. When they become more like Christ, they become more like the way that it was meant to be from the beginning, that thing that God is going to restore at the end. So when we think of God's character, praise the Lord for his goodness, but praise the Lord for his justice. And as we, in just a moment here, as we transition to communion, once a month we, we celebrate communion together, or the Lord's Supper, if, if that's what your tradition calls it. And 
And the point of that is to remember the cost. The point of that is to remember that my sin can't be just overlooked, but there had to be atonement for that. And if you keep reading, kind of as we finish Exodus into Leviticus, what you see is God saying, yes, I will restore my presence to you partly, but there's going to be ways in which that we accomplish that, and it's going to be the Levitical system. Blood will need to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. All of that pointing us forward to one day when Jesus will come and where his perfect blood will cleanse us of all sin. That's what we celebrate when we eat the bread and we drink the cup is we remind ourselves of God's love and his mercy and his justice. And I hope that we take that very seriously. God is not only a God of love, though praise the Lord that he is, but he's just too, and so my sin needed punishment. And I have a Savior who stepped in and took that punishment for me so that I could be redeemed. So I'm going to invite the guys up to help with communion, and I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to pass out the bread, and it'll go through the rows to everybody, and we'll all hold it together in our hand. And then I'll come back up, and, and we'll eat it together as, in unity as one body. And then we'll do the same for the cup. And, and all I'm asking that we do is that in those moments, Shayla's going to play a song for us. And I want that song, the lyrics in that song, to remind us of the truth of the gospel. Of the cost of our sin. But of the grace and the goodness of Jesus. So let's pray. God, in these next moments, as we hand out the elements for the Lord's Supper, as we hold in our hands the bread and the blood, We know these things are not literally of you. They're a symbol. It's something that we hold to focus our minds and our hearts on to remind ourselves that it costs Jesus' life on the cross. That it was by his perfect shed blood for us that we would find atonement for sin. And so God, in these moments... Would we evaluate our heart? Would we consider your grace and your justice at the same time? God, may we really consider who you are and what you have done for us in these moments. Amen.
This represents Christ's body broken for us. Let's eat in remembrance of him. God, as we pass out the cup now, we acknowledge that there was only one way for our sins to be dealt. And that is that the Messiah would come, that he would live a perfect life, that he would not have sin of his own to deal with, but that he could take the sin of our lives on him. That he could pay the cost. that we might be able to go and be with you for all of eternity because of your mercy, because of your grace, because of your justice. Amen. represents Jesus' blood spilled for us, the only atonement for our sins. Let's drink in remembrance of him.
It's a privilege to share communion with you, to worship with you, to submit ourselves to Scripture together. And, and just let me pray for us as we go next door here and eat together. Uh, remember, if you're visiting, you are more than welcome to stay. We would love to, to visit with you and get to know you more. And here's the challenge again. Sit with someone you don't know very well. Let's pray. God, thanks again for all we have learned this morning, all we have seen in the text. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. As we go next door now, as we eat together, as we fellowship together, as we build relationships together, may the love that we have for one another stand out in a culture that's divided by hate and hostility. May they see the love that we have and may they want to ask questions about why and may we be able to point them to Jesus Christ. God, thank you for all those who have brought food. Thank you for those who have come to visit with us. Would you bless this time that we have together now? We thank you for all that you are doing. We love you. Amen.